0: hello and welcome to another installment of bc museum portraits i'm bc museum portraits project manager this episode takes us to the sunshine coast museum and archives in gibson's where i spoke with curatorial assistant Allie rose bartlett as well as the manager and curator matthew lovegrove matthew Allie, thank you both for uh for taking the time to speak with me today about the history of the museum. Maybe start with both of you, how you got started in museums and specifically working at the Sunshine Coast Museum and Archives?
1: Sure. I'm a bit newer here by quite a few years. I have a briefer history we can get to first. I started in museums actually out of art school. I did an internship while I was going to the School of Museum of Fine Arts at Tufts in Boston. And I was an educational intern at the MFA in Boston. I started that as more of a like summer internship. Uh, from there, I dabbled into some more of the art side of different nonprofit institutions, such as the Center for the Arts at Castle Hill over in Truro on Cape Cod. And I had been working at the Banff Centre as a curatorial, but preparatorial practicum when the pandemic broke out. From there, I uh, managed to get a job over here after a little while and back into the museum side of things. Definitely combining some more of the artistic and more historic approaches to exhibits has been really interesting. And Matthew has been a great guide for that with some of his longer-term experience.
2: We're lucky to have Ali here. It's been really awesome to work with her. We're a small organization. I came on board at the museum in 2010 as a volunteer, actually, I was working up in, in Kananaska's country, up in the Rockies, mm-hmm. the parks. And a few years prior to that, while living in the Rockies, really had my interest in museum. When I went into the Canmore Museum, and I met the curator there at the time, and we just hit it off and hatched a project to, rec- to digitize old cassette tapes for the Canmore Museum. And that was my first little foray into the museum world. And I just got really excited about heritage work from there. And I have a background in English from the University of Guelph in Ontario. And then as soon as I had that interest peaked, I uh, started taking courses through the University of Victoria, the Cultural Resource Management Program, and came to the Sunshine Coast in 2010 and I started volunteering at the museum here, and I was lucky enough to, to apply for the position of curatorial assistant when it came available,
0: and I accepted that position. I've been here ever since. And then the, the collections here, I mean, they how, did they, how did they come to form? What were the early days of, of the Sunshine Coast Museum and Archives? That's it's a good question.
2: It all goes back generally to a, a guy named Les Peterson, and he was a local school teacher at Alphinstone Secondary School. And people, because he is a historian and a history teacher, they would bring artifacts and drop them off at his doorstep. And he started to amass a collection in his basement. And you can imagine that can only go far. (laughs) And from there, the Alphinstone Pioneer Museum Society formed. And that was back around in 65, 66. And still at that time, there was no building. It was the Alphinstone Pioneer Museum. Then they moved down to the town of Gibson's building down here. The collection moved from Les's house down to the basement of the the town of Gibsons. And through some, I imagine, a huge amount of advocacy work, there was a push to actually build a standalone museum. And In 1974, the main portion of this building was built, Mm -hmm. and the collection moved here. And from there, there's been renovations, we had it on a second floor in 1984, and um, in 2002, there was an amalgamation between the Alphonstone Pioneer Museum and the Maritime Museum down here in Lower Gibsons. And that's when we became the Sunshine Coast Museum and Archives. Okay. Okay. And so with that came relatively stable funding from the district, and that allows us to hire great staff and allows for a certain level of development that we might otherwise not have.
0: So, okay. You're talking about the amalgamation of different institutions yeah. in the area, did those collections Build in stops and starts, or was it a sort of insistent, gradual building up of the collections? We're really lucky to look back
2: and we see the documentation here, specifically from the Elphinstone Pioneer Museum. It's just meticulously put together. For what it appears, is that it's a continual collecting within the community. Mm. And then, of course, in 2002, when we have the Maritime Museum collection become amalgamated with Stone Pioneer Museum. We have a lot of artifacts come and you know try to bring those together, essentially. Mm-hmm. As far as you can tell, it, it is pretty continual collecting for both organizations. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So. And we definitely still get people coming to us with items they want to donate, like even the other day. That's something that we have a whole system for now. We have a lot of questions where people will come up and maybe on the way to the ferry, try to drop something off really quick, but we are definitely, keeping things a bit stricter now with like a different mandate for province to the Sunshine Coast, whereas not to point any fingers or anything, some of the previous institutions did not have like as strict ideas as the museums were forming, right? They were Mm -hmm. keeping things a bit broader but now that we have many artifacts we're able to really like hone in on what we want the museum to look like and what seems more relevant for that vision
2: which I think is pretty typical. You see that the building of that collection, whereas the the provenance doesn't perhaps need to be as tight knit for the Sunshine Coast community and the building of the collection with examples of kind and building exhibits, building archival collection. And when 2002 happens, the geographical collection mandate is really steadfast where we collect what we collect. And then I think the point we're at now is we're looking at how we can respectfully deaccession items that don't have that strong connection to the Sunshine Coast. That's the stage that we're at right now now. But like I said, we're lucky to have some, some pretty great documentation to work with for that deaccessioning process mm. and that's leading us on the right path right now.
0: Mm. How, how do you go about developing that process? What, what, are, what are What's some of your thinking behind deaccessioning?
2: I've come to realize that I think it's a really healthy... Um, it's a healthy part of organizations such as regional heritage museums. It's, again, when you have new changes in mandates and changes in, in what you're collecting, how you're collecting it, it's it's very natural, I think, especially if you you have limitations in space, which we definitely have that those limitations in terms of how much we can actually hold within the building. And we have offsite storage, but it's not necessarily appropriate for, for long-term preservation. I think it's a really healthy thing for organizations to be working on, although it's a little bit hard to wrap your head around it you want to make sure of course you're following best practice and being respectful about that process.
0: You're mentioning some items coming in the other day what are some collections that have come in recently that have surprised either of you? Oh. Something that you, you didn't didn't really expect or has enriched the story of, of, yeah. of the area. We're pointing out a yeah. mountain goat that yeah. came <laughs> in, a mountain goat head that came in recently.
1: Mountain goat stands out came in two different batches where from the same person we got Part of the body earlier and then re- the head just came in yesterday during uh, some oral history recordings that matthew was doing the participant brought in a donation for us that one's pretty pretty much a standout very interesting been enjoying our new mascot but there's <laughs> definitely there's a lot that people will bring in and it's always great when people think of us and reach out to see if they if they have something that we may be interested in. I can talk to maybe some of the accessions that I've been digitizing. We had a box of old color slides that I have digitized recently and those were brought to us and we weren't quite sure necessarily what they were but we were able to put together just based off the labels of the slides and the assistance of a community member that was on the crew was that they were actually location scouting slides for the Beachcomber series and through that we were able to connect some of them to different episodes and storylines that we're seeing on the Beachcombers that part i definitely had to get crawl our great community member to help me out with since I, of course, was born after the show stopped airing. I was not quite as familiar as he was, but he was able to match some faces and names that we had on the slides and even some of the TV shows. that was an interesting little collection that we weren't quite sure what it was. I mean, we had enough for the accession committee to approve it, and we thought we knew. that was something that we were able to confirm recently and get some nice shots, too, of the area like in the 80s and whatnot. Not, we don't have too many photos from that time period. So it was nice to start catching up historically with some photographs, right? Because the 80s don't seem that long ago, but I guess from our archival perspective, we're starting to look at them.
0: What are some of the things that you're seeing events or ideas that are impacting the community mm-hmm. presently that you have an eye to as, as a museum? I think the first thing that comes to mind would be when we were
2: doing active accessioning when covid started that rapid response collecting in the community and that was the last larger scale active sessioning that we've been doing, I would say we're more passive at this point in terms of people bringing in artifacts and and giving us a call and, or sending a photograph over and saying perhaps would you would you like this for the collection? But most definitely, that was a fascinating experience to be in real time trying to document what COVID was like at the beginning of the pandemic here on the Sunshine Coast. But like many communities, there's a huge amount of change that's that's occurring. I would say that Ali is totally correct and that we're we're really still focusing on the early settlers moving in towards the 50s. 60s, 60s and 70s, as soon as you get to the 80s, 90s, our collections drop off and that will become a focus in, in, in the coming years. Yeah.
1: So. Definitely like more modern day in the community we're starting to see of course like the place names changing along, you see them as you drive through the coast and that's something you can see a little bit about in our exhibits as well especially like when you first enter the museum. Uh, we're incorporating some of the Squamish nature, uh Squamish language, in partnership with the squamish Lowell Cultural Center. You're seeing some of that changing in the community, and as well being represented in the museum.
0: What are some What are some stories that you're you're looking to enrich in the collection you have in the museum? When I started working here at the museum, I was working with
2: a, an amazing cultural worker named Kimiko Hawks. I always love to give a shout out to Kimmy because she's done much great work in, in the in the museum world, specifically at the Sunshine Coast Museum. But her lens was always what are the hidden histories that we that that are missing from the historical narrative? Exploring those harder histories, those more challenging histories, and creating space for those stories to be told. I think that's, from my perspective, that's we've we've kept up with that, and that's. There's a real hunger, I think, in the community and for our visitors to, to know the more challenging parts of history and the further along we go, it becomes more glaring if those things are left out of, of from museums, I think. In terms of planning and, and, and looking with a critical eye, that's something I do pretty much every week when I'm walking around the museum and... Um, it's it uh, really has been driving the practice here, I think, for at least a decade, and we've had some great success with that. And it's challenging work, but I think it's it's uh, I think it's the way forward.
1: For example, we've been working on the Japanese internment exhibit. Upcoming, we do like a yearly Remembrance Day exhibit in November, and one. Uh, More recently we've been doing different thematic approaches to it. Uh, Last year I highlighted a specific community member and this year we're going to be highlighting the Pacific Coast Militia Rangers. And that was a group of men and boys that were on BC's coast and other parts of Canada as well that were really like people who were either like veterans and too old or injured to return to the battlefronts or they were too young or they were deemed like essential workers and a lot of men that were part of the logging industry or other some of the store owners and whatnot like were not actually supposed to go to the front mm. and instead a lot of them were put to use here in the community like preparing for defense of the coastlines and since quite a unique geography. A lot of the people around here really knew the area best. And we're really trying to like highlight that exhibit here that there were people like in the area at the time of the wars that were really trying to, you know, work to support the war effort. And that was something that I've been working like in collaboration with Stu McDonald has been helping a lot with some of the information for that since there are not a whole lot of records to go off of. But recently, we've been going through the newspaper archive that we have and able to expand the list of known locals that were participants. Mm. And that's something we're looking to highlight this year as well as the very real war efforts that were here.
2: That's something we have a real strength at the, on the Sunshine Coast mm-hmm. that I've noticed in my time here mm-hmm. is that there's just such a wealth of knowledge in the community from long-term settler families who, who've grown up here and have all of the stories to, to folks who have the expertise like Stu to work with yeah. and he'll come in here and volunteer, help us put together an exhibit you know, We've partnered with high school students from the local high school to do co-curation of exhibits here, which has been really rewarding. We're just lucky to have amazing folks to, to work with in the community. As a small organization, it's really crucial.
0: It seems like there is a very active community engagement with the museum archives. How has that developed over the years, and how, how do you maintain that relationship? and? And then into the future, how do you reach out to people that you feel maybe their story could be in the museum as well? I think it's an ethos that we just, we roll with. That's the MO a
2: little bit in that we've had such great success working with community members here. We just see that it provides beneficial experiences for folks in the community. And for us, of course, we benefit greatly from that. The community is such a huge partner and just in that participatory museum perspective, that's, it's huge for us. And that's it. That really, we're just much better off to be to be working with our community members. So,
1: a lot of people they do want to share their stories as well. There's no harm in asking, but it also helps that Matthew's a really friendly guy. So we definitely have people come in all the time, being like, "Was Matthew in?" And they have a specific idea in mind, or we know mm. when we have an idea that comes up or something we've been researching. You do like get to know the community members and who has maybe like what knowledge, or if we're missing a photo that we'd like to have an example of a specific location, we can reach out to different people of the different areas and communities and see who has what and what they'd be willing to share. It's always really nice when we're able to collaborate. And
2: we try to like, cultivate that culture of uh, being so open and trying to work against the stereotypes of of museums perhaps that are dusty and you literally can't talk and it's like, oh, be quiet. But just those yeah. cultural stereotypes we really try to work against. And I think staff here is, does an amazing job at that. And people come in, they feel welcome and they come back again and again, which for a small museum, I think it's really stellar when you have people coming from the city and say, yeah, I was here a couple of years back and I'm going to come and visit again. I think that's a really great sign for us and kudos to staff and, and volunteers for creating that culture. And within the museum, I just think it makes it easier to, yeah. to be able to reach out and say, hey, it's Allie from the museum. Do you want to maybe come down? And we just had a few questions, just curious.
0: Right? Yeah, we
1: both greet people who come into the museum, right? Since we we're a smaller staff, wear a lot of hats here and visitor greeting is a really important part of just like establishing that community relationship, even if, It's somebody who may never visit the coast again it's Mm -hmm. always something that you want people to feel good when they visit we want people to want to be here and feel like it's a a Mm -hmm. place where they can come and feel free to ask questions we're interested to have them here and we want to all share the history together and have people feel like we're not judging them or being snobby in any way if we're gonna be friendly when people come in then they're more likely to come back but also if they have some information or something in mind It's an important part of museums is if you're not nice, I feel like a lot of people will dissociate it as a place they don't want to be and can not really build the community feeling that we want here.
0: Your experience is through, you've done historical sites before, you've also done contemporary art settings as well. What's that feeling like? Are you wearing a different hat in each context? Or what do you feel is the similarities, differences?
1: There's definitely some overlap, obviously, like an idea of how exhibits look and are suitable by audience members stays pretty similar where what is the proper level for people to be able to access text panels or images or whatnot. We do a lot here to make sure that our newer panels are standardized, so it's easier for people to read with like typeface, font sizing, all sorts of things like that. And that's pretty similar in more of like the art world as well. But, and there's always like some similarities in programs with like educational outreach or workshops. Some of the differences may be more that we're not going out necessarily and seeking pieces from specific individuals. Like you may, if you're working with particular artists, which is definitely a really interesting way of building exhibits. Um, Whereas here we're definitely working more with what is brought to us and what we have here, like we were talking about. We do collaborate with people from time to time on certain parts, but it's definitely something that we have a certain mandate and we work through that and some galleries and museums in the art world do that as well. But it is a little bit different, whereas there may be like a little less flexibility and interpretation where we do have like quite a few exhibits here and there's always a lot to look at and different ways that curation can change the perceptions of different things Mm -hmm. but that said we do have most of our things here are permanent collection pieces we work really with what is here and with the region as well right we typically don't get too many exhibits that are made up of things from other places. That said the PCMR one that we're working on for Remembrance Day, we are getting quite a few artifacts on loan from other areas. Mm-hmm. Since that is something that we don't necessarily have at the museum. Uh, that's there there's definitely quite a few similarities. Even like the research aspects of different exhibits or research requests we get here can be pretty similar going through those same channels. And when I was at the Banff center. We used the same database system for that we use in the museum here. What
0: are some community engagement
2: events? So we've been a, a little yeah. bit of a static zone in terms of bringing in new exhibits and mm-hmm. temporary exhibits from from other organizations, but um, we did a renovation in 2016 here at the museum, and that really opened up the space for for events and workshops. Over the years we've done all sorts of things. We worked a, a fair bit with Jess Sylvie, who does cedar weaving, basket weaving workshops here at the museum. And same with uh, Swaycia Spukwus, Alice Gus from Squamish Nation. We've done a number of workshops with Swaycia as well, um, as you would, you would expect from a regional museum speaker series. A genealogical night we've done down here our annual halloween event has been a really a great community collaboration that we're we're working on and we're really thankful to have a space because before the renovation it was it was hard to to do the larger scale events and it's still quite a small spot but we can we can get some people in here so how do you go about
0: building your exhibitions at the at the museum? In
2: terms of the Remembrance Day exhibit, that is a, it's a future exhibit that we do annually. And we're always putting that out for about a month. But in terms of the whole interpretive plan within the museum, it's it's something that we are working on. We have our permanent exhibits related to collaboration with the Squamish nation, to more of the settler histories upstairs, the logging histories, the maritime. But again, I think we, we oftentimes do go back to looking critically or what are we missing here on, on display? And that is driving a little bit of the planning moving forward. But I'm a big subscriber to Tim Willis, the, the exhibit planner and, and designer over in Victoria. His idea of just finding what that big idea is for, for an exhibit, getting to the heart of it. What is the spark of curiosity that you can communicate to, to people? I mean, again, we're looking at doing one feature exhibit per year typically. But we're working as well to put new text panels and reinterpret older exhibits, standardize the font, bring, bring everything up to a, a legible size for everybody that's something we're working on mm. for me it just comes down to the storytelling i come from a little bit of an interpretive background and how do you provoke those those stories and and connect with, uh, with the visitors
0: for someone who's visiting this area what is a history or a, a story of the, the region that you think would surprise them um you know you're...
1: i really came to the sunshine coast not knowing very much about it maybe outside of some ej hughes paintings i had that idea of it coming in which is definitely more of a almost more of like maritime perspective like those paintings are quite colorful and definitely focus on more of like the coastal life and coming here there's definitely like small hidden gems of that coastal life here and we bring that out in the museum quite a bit as well but when you're out looking around you can still see a lot of the effects of some of the early community building especially you know some of the buildings are older like you see Stonehurst the wharf is always a big treat to see here where that's brings you right back to some of the images that we have of the older wharfs in our collection that's still very like a coastal life where some parts of the coast are not as coastal anymore or necessarily like have that same feeling we do have larger grocery stores now than back in the day but there is still quite a like sense of that older community style especially here where we're located in lower gibsons you can really see a lot of similarities to what we have in the collection here and i think that's definitely like a nice hidden gem that we have along the coast and if you go further on the coast you'll see that again like through the different smaller communities like Roberts Creek it has a really lovely like heritage feeling there. And it's something that's kind of carried on to how the community feels today and over in Seashell as well. And you go up even further, It's it's really nice to see those different areas of the coast and how they've been shaped by these different geographic histories and the pe- different people who have been through them as well. There's always definitely like the natural elements here, of course, coming from the East Coast. It's nice to see some of the the communities here it can be a little reminiscent of back home, but the nature is really something else. We don't get trees this big, <laughs> like by <laughs> far. Having the mountains right next to the ocean is really something quite different from where I'm from in Nova Scotia. That's something I, I do really like about being out in BC is, Even some of our less rigorous hikes are still mountainsides and beautiful views, right?
2: up in Roberts Creek which is a small community just mm. up, up the coast here there was a fair number of draft dodgers who came up from from the US as well as back to the Landers in the late 60s or early 1970s there was a lot of folks coming to to the forests of, of Roberts Creek to to homestead mm. and to grow their own food and bringing those con- countercultural ideals out and in, out into the woods here mm. and there's a really fascinating history there that I think we've been learning a fair bit about we have to give a shout out to our our past summer student, Kaelin Schober. She did an amazing interview with Diana Morgan, who came up in in the early 1970s, and she spoke about her experiences within the landscape, farming, and getting to know the community. Those really interesting parallels between that type of lifestyle with some of the early settlers who came here, Mm -hmm. and those connections actually, they they flourished a little bit Mm -hmm. when you hear Diana's story. I think that's a really fascinating little tidbit of coastal heritage that we will explore eventually. What are
0: some research projects that people have done or publications where they've made use of the, uh, the collection?
2: Recently was Colleen Skidmore, author and professor, I believe she's out of Alberta, and she was putting together a book about female photographers in Western Canada, I think 1840 to 1940, and she contacted us about our Helen McCall collection Helen McCall was an early photographer here who took thousands of photographs documenting the coast and we provided some photographs and I believe some content to to Colleen for her book that just recently came out and it's a really nice production as well it's uh, definitely recommended if, if folks are looking for information on that.
1: We do try to find different family members for people from time to time and we are lucky where we have much of our archives and photographs fully digitized and those are available on our website of course but if there's anybody looking for specific things or they're having maybe some difficulty with the website itself, that's something we're always happy to help out with Mm -hmm. and having worked with these different systems we have at the museum definitely makes it a lot faster for us to find things. Mm -hmm. It's really great and of course the newspaper on the coast as well, the Coast Reporter and if they ever have like a quick question they need to ask before something goes out we're always happy to help out with that it's great to really see some of those things go right into print sometimes we learn too doing the research requests some people ask really interesting questions that you just wouldn't necessarily think of or a lot of people are interested too in what was in a certain location before what is there now we from time to time are able to connect people with who was actually there beforehand? Like we have the the mall that's up in Upper Gibsons. It used to be a lot of farmland. Some of the questions that we've had recently have been, actually been from young farmers asking about what those farmlands looked like and where they exactly they were. And we've been able to put them in touch with some of the people who had those properties initially.
2: I'm sure it's similar in other organizations where you have new folks moving to the community and when looking to situate yourself, a museum's a natural place to do that mm-hmm. and folks are interested. And I think our digital outreach has really helped us with yeah. that. We're able to put archival photographs, newspaper clippings, and just spur on that interest and let folks know that we're here. You can help develop those connections with the community if you're new, and that's something we, we spend active energy. The first things we did during the first wave of, of the, the pandemic was work to put together an online portal called Museums at Home, or Sunshine Coast Museum at Home, and we gathered all of our digitized content, all of the links, the digitized newspapers, the photograph collections, a few oral histories and we brought that content together and we did active outreach to community members to the school district here to, to say we're, we're closed <laughs> but you can you can access this content and still have, have that connection.
1: Even having our uh, little 3D online, you could go through almost like Google Street View of the museum. When I first moved oh, here, what? the museum was closed because it was pandemic but before I interviewed here, <laughs> I took the virtual tour on our website to see what I was getting into and different things that I thought my skill set might be able to speak to, especially with some more of the photography collection is something that i've been particularly drawn to
2: we were really lucky with we we had that uh, 3d virtual tour set up about a year and a half before covid started <laughs> and shout outs to steven sue who's on our board of directors now at the museum he, he came in and he volunteered to do the 3d virtual tour and get that all set up for us so it's not the same thing but you do get a taste it's kind of nice yeah. to see what what to expect when you do come in person yeah.
0: what are some projects that are in the works at the moment that you're you're both excited about
2: in terms of just a basic museum environmental perspective, we've just put in a, a heat pump mini-split system here in the museum. That's just about two months old here. That's going to really improve the collections care here. We're still working on the dehumidifier. That should be complete in the next month or month or two. We're really looking forward to have that that completed so we can step up our collections care in terms of a, a, a stable environment for, for preservation.
1: It's been a big one, almost uh, immediately after we had that installed, people were Uh, saying how much more comfortable the visitor experience was here, especially during the heat of summer. The temperature difference between the two floors of the building can be pretty distinct, and since we've had that, you know, I almost forget what it was like before, and it's only been two months. That was a big effort. And
2: that's something we keep at the forefront too, and even previous to that, our lighting upstairs, we only had LED lighting on the main floor. Upstairs, it was super dark. We'd hear it from almost every visitor, came down, and said it's just it's just too dark up there to read panels, to enjoy the artifacts, and we listened to, to that input and we tried to implement that to improve the experience. But one thing that I think is gonna be coming up, hopefully, in the next little bit is, um, right when COVID hit, we were working with Raquel Joe from Thameswea Museum looking at installing a feature exhibit here about the Seashot Residential School that ran for about 75 years here on mm-hmm. the Sunshine Coast. And so that's, we're reinvigorating that conversation with Raquel. And hopefully that will be our next feature exhibit. Of course, the cultural landscape has changed a little bit since 2019 when we were having those conversations. And that is something that we'll be looking looking forward to, be, to, to
0: work on. Mm. Five, 10 years out, where do you see the 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 museum and the archives
1: I believe that we'll be doing a lot more in terms of digitization. We have had a huge success with that. Like we've got the archival newspapers from the coast that are no longer running fully digitized thanks to our incredible volunteers and we're still working on quite a few of those. I would love to see some of our larger archives get digitized as well. We've been able to do great things with the smaller scale pieces, but a lot of our maps are really beautiful and they're definitely like a challenge for us. We aren't able to use our scanner for them just because of their size. And that would really open up a whole new section of the museum that we have. We have those archival materials, but photographing them with our technology is just not really the same. And that is something people are interested in, but it's just a bit complicated for what we have right now.
2: Most of our photographs have been digitized. The newspapers, through Irvin K. Barber grants, we've digitized those. The archives, primarily, most of them have been been digitized as well. As an organization and, and our growth, we are the Regional Heritage Museum of the whole lower Sunshine Coast, although we're located in Gibson's. We have really strong partnerships working with the different heritage organizations up and down the coast, the Temsuya Museum, like I mentioned, the Sechelt Nation Museum, the Seashell Archives, which we've been stepping in to have more of a working with them directly in terms of budgeting and, and operationally, up to Pender Harbour, the Pender Harbour Living Heritage Society, and then the Egmont Heritage Centre. We're working with all of these partners and I think that Hopefully we'll be able to, to grow our, our staff. There's talk of uh, some renovations possibly and uh, extensions to the building while we're in talks with the town of Gibson that could, could occur. And again, just continuing to work with our community and, and work with the local nations as well to, to uh, do the work that we do.
0: The relationship of the, the museum with the different historical societies and nations in, in this region, was that something that happened early on in the formation of the museum and archives?
2: We've been looking back to see about repatriation of, of items within the, the Elphinstone Pioneer Museum, and you can look back in the paperwork, and you can see those those connections and those repatriation projects going back to the 90s. And I think because we are a small community, there it seems like there has always been those connections, and we've just been building on those throughout the time as our time as an organization.
1: Yeah. Wow. Even with Les Peterson, he was always interviewing different members of Seashell Nation as well, and really interested in those histories, even one of the first people involved in getting the museum to where it is now, that was something on his mind as well, and he did active work trying to incorporate those histories. Right? Things
2: are always changing in terms of how these collaborations look, I think, and our understanding is always changing. We're settlers who who are operating in a, a museum that whose history is primarily coming from a settler perspective, but at the same time we've done some amazing collaborations with Squamish Lowell Center for our permanent exhibit, Quake when Moat Pieces of the Past, and we're always seeing how we can further the practice that we do here at the Sunshine Coast Museum. Well, Ali,
0: Matthew, thank you for sitting down with me and, and having conversation. Thanks for
1: coming to the museum.
0: This has been another BC Museum Portrait. BC Museum Portraits is done in partnership with the BC Museum Association. To hear more portraits and view the accompanying images made by project photographer Taiyu Hayward, please go to museum.bc.ca. Thank you very much for listening.